Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. It's all about now. Today, it's going to be Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? You know, you've been on more television appearances. I mean, the, the just you just keep booking them. You're a master at this with another topic. But how are you, Dave? You know, it's easy if, if you know how. I mean, uh, if you just give somebody a fish dinner, you fed them for one day. But somebody taught me how to fish and get on TV. And I can literally pick up the phone and be on any television show all across the country. Uh, I'll, I'll get nine no's or nine ignores, and uh, I'll typically get one yes. So if you can put up with the nine rejections or the nine ignoring, uh, it, it's easy. But see, that's the thing that it's amazing that you're finding those bookings, but then you're booked. Because just because you get a hold of a producer, that doesn't mean you're getting booked. It's called being Really, I want to be on. But your topic with the gas station, that's the big one, right, that everyone wants to talk about. And surprising, they want you because a lot of those TV stations are liberal. So, you it's know, what everybody is talking about, Neil, everybody has to go to the gas station. Everybody has to pump and fill her up. And everybody gets a little upset when they look up at the price sign and see prices going up and up and up and up. Thank you, Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, it's 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 a hot topic. And it never seems to go away. And uh, yeah, I was I got on 35 TV shows talking about caregiving. But all of a sudden, you know, caregiving took the back seat and everybody's talking about gas. So my mentor, Clint Arthur, says, Sandy, I've been telling you to do this gas segment for three years. You just won't listen to me. He wrote one up really fast for me. I pitched it and I just did my uh, 17th appearance. Wow. And what do you, what do the people say after you you come on and do the interview? Like, wow, this is information I had no idea about. You know, they they are delighted. They are blown away. They learn a lot of new things. Clint thinks that this segment is going to take me to Good Good Morning America and the Today Show, and he says this is the one. This is the one, man. And you know, any exposure that I can get is going to just expose who I am and what I do. And, you know, I have an amazing caregiving story. A lot of people don't understand it. A lot of people don't understand caregivers. These producers don't understand caregivers. But they understand they gas prices. They're in their 20s. You know, they don't know any what a, what the caregiver. I didn't know what a caregiver was, you know, but everybody gets, gets gas, you know. And so my segment is don't be a chump in the pump. Five costly mistakes that motorists make when they fill her up. And, I mean, you probably don't even know the five mistakes. You probably Okay, let's hear them. Oh, you want to hear the pitch, huh? Well, you know, if the first question people ask is, uh, should I get regular or premium? Well, unless you're driving a high performance or luxury vehicle, why would you waste 30 or 40 cents a gallon on premium if your car doesn't need it? I mean, some people think it's like, oh, well, I want to give my car a treat, like give it filet mignon. Well, it doesn't work that way. You know, read your owner's manual. Costly mistake number two is, should I check my oil? Well, yes, of course you should. And you should do it every single month. And Change your oil two to four times a year because dirty oil wreaks havoc on an engine. Costly mistake number three is cheaper gas, really cheaper in the long run. Well, not necessarily, especially if you're going to that uh, small independent mom and pop shop, you know, and they got to buy their gas wherever they can find it. Every now and then they come across contaminated fuel. Yes, it happens. And if that fuel ever reaches your gas tank, boy, kiss your engine goodbye because it's unrepairable. Policy mistake number four, what about your tire pressure? When's the last time you checked your tire pressure? A lot of people don't realize that underinflated or overinflated tires uh, can affect your gas mileage, can affect your engine performance. It can affect your tire life, cut it right in half. But most importantly, it can affect deadly accidents. Hello, <laughs> you know, circle your car before you get in it and inspect your tires. Look for protrusions coming out of there. And I'm guilty of this, we all are. Costly mistake number five, uh, we were taught as children, you know, that yellow lights means caution, right? Well, if you see a yellow light on your dashboard, that's a danger Will Robinson moment. Get your mechanic to inspect that immediately. Don't ignore it. It's not going to go away. You know, uh, in the gas station business, that's what we kind of call idiot lights. <laughs> because before gauges were out, you know, uh, if you're waiting till the oil light comes on in your car to put a quart of oil in it, then... I'm sorry, it might apply to you. So don't be an idiot and don't uh, neglect these five costly mistakes because I, I got to tell you, if you uh, read my book, Getting Hose Secret Confessions 
of a gas station owner. It's got great stories in it. It's got money saving tips and so on. And here's one story. You know, I've been at the bottom of this grapevine, which is a hill in Los Angeles, uh, 27 miles of nothing. People don't come into my gas station because they're looking for cheap gas. <laughs> their tanks are on empty. Their bladders are on full. They coast into my station on fumes and they're falling asleep. They need coffee. So I have a reputation for having the, the best espresso in town and the cleanest restrooms in town. In fact, one time the tractor trailer truck carrying. Are you cleaning those restrooms yourself, Dave? Me personally? No, yeah. I have people to do that, but I have. How did you train the them to do that? How did I train them to do it? Yeah. I teach one person and then they teach the other person and so on and so on. But and every sure now you and have, then, you have, so you have certain expectations. Every now and then I will clean the toilet. If I go in there, I have to use it and it's dirty. I'll grab the mop. I'll grab the, the you know, I'm not too proud to uh, clean a toilet. Why would I ask somebody else to do something that I'm not willing to do? I'm that kind of a boss, you know. I love it. Anyway, getting back to that chicken truck, they lost their brakes. They came into my station. They crashed into the building, which happens pretty often, by the way. And there were dead chickens everywhere, man. Uh, eggs were frying on the hot summer asphalt. I had to round up all the chickens. I didn't know what to do with them. I stuck them in the men's room. Out with your chickens right. before they're hatched. The hens, right? I stuck the hens in the ladies' room. And we made the headlines that day. Ku Klux Klan. So that's my gas station of... Uh, Oh, so, so that's they a great to see entertaining and that's where the entertainment comes so what is next what's your next television pitch is it going to be you refuse the vaccine <laughs> Just i don't know what my next television yeah, pitch is yeah, but exactly. uh, when, it, when it happens I, you gotta look, I you gotta look what's the hot thing i item i wonder you know other costs looking at other costs that are going up now uh because of inflation you know so you got to be an expert you can't just pick a topic so I've been in the gas station business for 37 years. So that makes me an expert. I even own uh, gasolineexpert.com. <clears throat> what, what other costs increase based on owning a gas station because of the inflation? You can look at well, those things and be an entrepreneur talking about inflationary costs and how it's, it's, it's hurting your and I overall do talk about that. People want to know why prices are going up. And I says, well, generally, there's four reasons why prices go up. Number one, demand See, there you go. Up. Four reasons why four prices people, go up as a business owner. That would yeah, be more people want it and they're willing to pay for it. And number two, as supply goes down, there's less of it to buy and more people are willing to pay for it. Number three is inflation. All that money that we're printing that's backed by nothing, you know, it makes all commodities go up, including gas and oil. And uh, the fourth one is government regulation. Sometimes governments uh, force an oil company to not drill from their leased lands, which they have a right to drill. They'd rather that they uh, buy expensive foreign oil instead of pulling the cheap crude out of the ground. Go figure. This is all great information, Dave. <laughs> Fantastic information. Now, again, if you're telling somebody, just do it, but they got to be an expert. You have to have a history an of an expert. I've come up with a list. Uh, there's a list of six things. If you want to be a celebrity in your industry, which you already are, Neil, so you probably uh, are doing all these things. But number one, you need to have celebrity attachment, right? Everybody loves celebrities. So I've got pictures, as you can see behind me, with as many celebrities as I can find. If I see one at the airport, I'll stop and say, hey, uh, you got time to take a picture? I'm a big fan. Sir, that's that's check off one. I have that's number one. Number two, be be a best selling author. People are really don't have that best selling author, but I am a writer for a magazine, so I can for a celebrity interviewing. Yeah, that's like one percent of the population, and it's so easy these days to be a best selling author on Amazon. Number three, uh, award winning whatever, award winning speaker, award winning this, award winning that. People love awards. You know, even if you're a speaker. You can make uh, a deal and negotiate with the See, I'm top 45 celebrity podcasts in the world, ranked 16th above Shaq. So, we'll, go. Go so we'll add that as celebrity interviewer. Okay. So and you can just ask one. them and say, hey, I'll come and speak if you give me an award. <laughs> that's not outrageous. Number four, uh, you speak at prestigious speaking venues, right? I spoke at Harvard. I spoke at NASDAQ, Carnegie Hall, West Point. And I'm sure you've spoken at uh, prestigious Places. Clubhouse, <laughs> clubhouse in front of a hundred people in my there own you go. room, and not so, everybody uh, can do that. Yeah, yeah I, I know they can. You know that for a fact, Dave. You can't go open up a room and get that many people. Uh, so check off. And then that number one. five, uh, TV appearances. I've just uh, 
appeared on my 49th TV appearance all across the country from Hawaii to Washington, D.C. And people are impressed when you're on TV. Yes. And finally, number six, celebrity lifestyle photos. They, people want to see that you're in Hawaii, you know, enjoying the beach, that you're uh, going to Europe, that you're doing this, and doing that. Say, wow, this guy's living the, the, the rich and famous lifestyle. And if you do those six things, you're, it's going to set you apart from your prospects, from your clients, from your friends and your family. Think about it. There's lots of competition. And if somebody has a choice between A and B, and B's got all these things, six on the list, who do you think they're going to pick? Dave. <laughs> they're going to pick Dave. See, I or like Neil. That, like that, like, <laughs> okay, that's true. But like for me, like the different celebrities and challenging challanging Rick Bow to a wrestling match. Who's going to say they can have that opportunity to interview Rick sure. Bow and set hey, him up right a, in the ring a in February? Resume. And then so, a yeah. That's yeah. why you're so famous because no, people, no. you've got a great resume. You so, social media, then I would add some other components. Stuff you've done. If you have more followers than your other people, you have more followers, you're known in social media, you're Googleable. That's right. that makes you uh, a celebrity. That, so we Grant can go, Cardone, right? We can, yeah, we, then Grant Cardone shows Evan up. Evan O'Leary from uh, Shark Tank, you know, yeah, he, yeah. he appears on uh, that as well. So, uh, and, and then things just start happening that I hadn't even planned on. They're making a feature film about my, my life. I never planned for that. I just happened to talk to somebody and he said, oh, I'm a film producer. Well, that's a great story. I said, okay, awesome. Next thing you know, we're signing contracts. See, and then business deals up. happen where you never expected. You get business yeah. partners you never expect. You get different opportunities. And that's the power of social audio. So and I'm working on my fourth book, Secrets from the Hammock. Uncommon wisdom for uncommon times. See, what helps Dave is Dave has a company that, I mean, his gas station, it runs itself pretty much. So he can write books and do all those different things. And because yeah. most of the time it runs itself, most, it most of the time it runs itself. It didn't run itself. And very so good. it's impressive what all Dave is able to do. But the best place to go if you want to know about Dave Nasani is go where? Dave TV. And so is that a website now, not just about caregiving? That's it, my new website. I've also got Dave uh, at caregiverdave.com, I've got gasolineexpert.com. You know, it's important they all to go have to the same website different or not, domains David? and different websites. You know, okay. you can build a cheap website uh, on Cox. And if you've got a, a beautiful domain, don't just forward it to your domain. It needs to be there by itself so that you get the Google analytics. You know? And I'm speaking uh, in London, so I don't know if I can come on your show the, the two weeks that I'm in um, London, but I'm going to be speaking at yes, the Royal Society yeah. of Medicine. Five hours difference, brother. Come on. Whatever. I'm going to be speaking at the London Stock Exchange, uh, talking about you know prestigious venues. Yeah. I'm going to be getting pictures with Nigel Farrar, okay. uh, talking awesome. about celebrity attachment. I'm going to be in Las Vegas uh, the following month with Dog Bounty Hunter. I'm going to be flying these Black Hawk uh, choppers from the military, and we're going to be shooting big old guns and cannons, and uh, you know that's all part okay. of celebrity lifestyle. All right, so caregiverdave.com. Good talking to you, Dave, and that was a fun interview. And take care. You too. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Time to solve real problems in every education by answering key questions to ensure that every child can learn. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Every Child Can Learn, and I'm excited to welcome the program, Phil Maycomer. Phil, how are you? I'm doing so well, Neil. I'm so excited for our episode topic today and ready to dive in. Oh, I am as well. And the question that we always ask that your uh, people ask you all the time, ask Phil this question is, there is a gap between the achievement of general education student performance and that of students who receive special in specialized instruction. Can this be solved? 
Well, what you're really asking about is the achievement gap. Now, achievement gaps can be resolved by increasing what we call equity in schools to really elevate our instruction, our instructional practices, and redefining inclusion of students with disabilities. Now, Neil, when we embrace teaching methods which scaffold high quality instruction, it really meets the needs of all students in the classroom, those above grade level, those at grade level, and those below grade level. And you'll find that it assists in the creation of a learning environment that truly supports and also extends student learning. It fosters student independence, which is what we want, and it makes teacher evaluation much more efficient. I agree, definitely. You know, Neil, I'm very excited to have a very dear colleague of mine join this episode, and I'd like to take time to introduce her. Would that be a logical next step? Yes, definitely. All right. My special guest today is Catherine Woods. Since 1984, Catherine Woods has focused her work primarily in the public school setting with an emphasis on increasing access to education for all children, from paraeducator to principal, and then on to director of special education. Kathy has been tireless in her efforts to advocate for children with disabilities. Over the two decades, over 20 years that I have known her, I highly respect her knowledge base and strategic planning abilities. I am proud to let our listeners know that Kathy has been a contributing author to both of my best-selling books, The Power of the Pact and Every Child Can Learn, Your Roadmap to Inclusive Education. And an exciting announcement, she will serve as a co-author partner right alongside me in the third book focused on teaching executive functioning skills. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Phil. It is a pleasure to be here. Well, I am so excited to dive into our episode topic today on the achievement gap, because you really have dedicated your entire career to lessening this gap. And so I think to start with, what I'd like to do is to ask if you could really explain in understandable terms for everyone what an achievement gap is and then what causes it to exist. Sure. An achievement gap is that difference in the achievement or academic performance between different groups of students. So for instance, between those students with IEPs and those students who maybe don't have IEPs in spite of the fact they received the same instruction. And let's define the term IEP. I think that most of our listening audience is in the field of education or they are families who have children in educational school systems. But let's just explain that acronym real quick. Do you mind? No, I don't. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. An IEP is an individual education program that is designed to meet the unique needs of students with disabilities. And it can include their specialized instruction, as well as the, any related services to that specialized instruction and accommodations that will assist the student in uh, accessing their general ed curriculum and instruction, meaning their regular ed classroom. So in your many years of experience, and also in the years that we have worked together, we know that not all curriculum, instruction, or even assessment is accessible to all students, right? That's right. There's several reasons why the achievement gap can exist. 
Uh, one might be that inequitable access to the curriculum instruction and assessment that you just mentioned. Another might be unfair or biased instructional practices that might be based on a bias within the materials or a lack of cultural awareness uh, held by the, that the teacher might uh, not be aware of. And other times it might be outside influences such as lack of community support or lack of support for education uh, from a student's home or a lack of quality or qualified staff. And sometimes, especially in our more urban areas, inequitable school buildings. An example might be in an assessment provided to a student, for instance, for early to assess early reading skills. Um, I, it is it could be expected that a student identify a classification of or a grouping of stores, for instance, based on an outline of a logo. That logo may only be a logo, for instance, for a grocery store in the southern tier of the United States and not even exist in the northern tier or in the northern New England in a very rural area. And so the student would not have the knowledge to respond appropriately to that particular item in the assessment. So, and Kathy, I think that a nice way to sum that example up to make sure that our listeners are understanding your brilliant example is that certain areas, regardless of whether it's in the United States or outside of the United States, certain areas have certain things and places in them. And if you show a student something that is outside of their geographic location, we cannot assume that it's in their knowledge base. Is that what you're trying to say? That's correct. Okay, that's I just wanted to make sure I was understanding that. I mean, and that's, that makes so much sense to me. Well, and that can happen not only within assessment materials, but also within curricular materials. Can you give us an example for that? So a curriculum that has been developed uh, by, or by a company that is located in a particular state may actually lean more toward the history of that particular area and not cover uh, so, for instance, maybe they lean toward the history of the southeast region of the United States, whereas, and that would potentially leave out examples of history that are important in northern New England, where I reside. I see. So, basically, these are th important things that you have covered as to the why behind the achievement gap. And then we can move on to my next question. So you said inequitable access to curriculum, instruction and assessment, right? Because you could have various race and ethnic backgrounds. You could have students with disabilities. You also could have students that are homeless, right? That you yeah. have pointed out in your chapter in Every Child Can Learn. Um, you also said unfair instructional practices, like the instructional materials uh, may be biased in some way, or certain groups of children might not have uh, really equal access to those. And then you said outside influences. And one of the things that you did write in Every Child Can Learn is also lack of funding, because we know funding is a struggle, right? That, that is very true. In fact, my current school district is a part of a very large lawsuit against our state of New Hampshire for unfair funding of public education. Wow. And this is, this is something that is going on, I believe, across the United States, um, depending on the funding model of public education that's used in that particular, in any particular state. Thank you for clarifying that. You know, also, you know, as you know, I work in many different geographic locations. Funding is an issue around the world. 
it is just amazing the lack of monies and resources that people really struggle with providing to basic educational needs. So here's my next question. Phil, before that, do you think it's going to change anytime soon? I do think it's going to change. I think that our situation with very different instructional models as a result of the pandemic has really opened eyes up to various ways of learning, a list of different needs that teachers and students have that are brought to the forefront in people's minds. And I think with every struggle comes a learning experience, right, Neil? You know, we talk about you cannot have change or you cannot have growth without change. And so I do think that we are going to move in a different direction with this. But unfortunately, you know, there's like 25% of teachers are wanting to leave the field after the struggles they've dealt with in fifth the past 15 months, but that's a topic for another episode. So I'd like to move on to my next question, Kathy. And this is related to the top three things, because you know me, I always focus on solutions, right? So what would you think are the top three things? I'm sure that we could do 10 or 20 or even 100 but just the top three things that must occur in order for students with disabilities to succeed in the gen ed classroom. My top three things um, include the use of instructional methodologies that support all learners, an increase in collaboration amongst the members of the instructional team and professional development in the form of seminars and class offerings, embedded coaching and modeling, and roundtable discussions. So that was quite a list. Uh, These are real life solutions and you've walked the walk of providing these in the various districts that you've had leadership positions. I'd like to go to the first one, Uh, the use of instructional methodologies that support all learners because In my experience in education, and I've been in the field for just about as long as you have, that I see special ed doing something so diversely different than what is delivered in the gen ed classroom. So there is quite a gap between special ed and gen ed. And one of my goals has been to bridge that gap with my teaching methodology, the PACT. So I know in your districts that you have embraced the PACT as one of your instructional methodologies to be able to support all learners because it's a roadmap for UDL, right? Correct. Now, Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and in fact, um, we have brought in professional development for all teachers in the in how to utilize the strategies that are found in the PACT as well as other UDL or universally designed uh, UDL, (laughs) UDL strategies. Um, And, and, you know, headed back toward my uh, belief that professional development in the form of seminars, class offerings, embedded coaching and modeling and roundtable discussions, we have embedded that in the professional development that was offered to all learners. So when we have a roundtable discussion with you, the author of the pact in our district, that team includes related service providers, regular ed classroom teachers, special educators, building principals, all working in different buildings within the district, yet having a similar conversation about how to reach all students with their instruction and with their therapies. Now, Kath, I have loved the way that you have done strategic planning in the districts that I've worked with you in. 
So Neil, you and I have over the many years that we have known each other now, talk about training and the importance of giving teaching staff what they need, right? And one of the things that uh, you and I have also talked about is the training of our paraeducator staff, right? Those that provide tutoring, after school programs, families, right? And Kathy has a lot of experience in being able to bring all of these people in to have one conversation. And I think the term that I have seen her use before is let's get rid of the silos in education, right, Kathy? Because I have heard you repeatedly, even at national conferences, speak on this topic. It is my mission to assist districts in creating a single system of education that is quality education provided by qualified instructors. That is that single system rather than the siloed approach to education that we have now. Which we know does not work. Like Neil and I talk about this all the time, right, Neil? That we do not need to accept if they're not working. We need to facilitate change. So now I have a question for you, Kathy. After putting instructional methodologies that support universal design for learning, which means all students can have access and engage in a way that their brain learns, right? After you have provided these different tiered levels of professional development, whether it was a seminar, whether it was a class, whether you had people come in and mentor and coach. I know I've been one of the people that have come into your districts where I walk the walk of actually modeling all the strategies I teach in my seminars and having district-wide discussions. What's been the result in, in your districts? So after providing the professional development for any staff um, and providing the tools with which they can begin the work. That's so key, right? You and I say this all the time. That it, you know, the funniest comment uh, after a particular training in which I came in with a whole pile of, I don't know, pen friends, I think it was, a teacher said, Oh, it feels like I'm on the Ellen show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. Every time people refer to you as Santa Kathy, because you're a big believer in don't get people excited in a seminar about all these cool things you could use in education if you don't give your staff the cool stuff, right? Hey, how often does that happen? And then yeah. the teacher is expected to go back and use their paltry supply money to purchase the materials they were just learning about. Well, to me, that doesn't work. And so um, I have made it a point to provide as many of the tools as I possibly can for, for the staff who have received the training so that they can start to walk the walk. And Kathy, I have been in some of your educational sessions at national conferences where you have spoken to administrators, advising them to follow this type of strategic planning. So I feel like you just don't keep these good ideas to yourself. You shout them out to the people that need to hear them. And so just kudos to you for doing that and really facilitating change. Now- Thank you. But I think really the reward has been for me to see not only in my districts, but also to hear about from districts where I have been able to provide this information to the administrators, that they too have seen an increase in co-planning, an increase in co-teaching, an increase in collaboration between teachers within one building, but also between other buildings in their districts. Um, as well as specifically with the PACT and the IPACT, they've seen an increase in less, uh, in ease in lesson planning and principals have felt 
and ease in conducting teacher evaluations? You know, and that's really the whole ball of wax, right? It's, you know, you have referred to that, at least as it relates to my research-based teaching framework, the PACT. You call them pre-PACT and post-PACT outcomes. And those you just listed, which I think are meaningful changes. So here's my final question to you in this episode. Did you see an increase in students to narrow and solve the achievement gap in accessing the general ed curriculum in the classrooms using the PACT and some of this strategic planning that you have unfolded in your districts? Absolutely, and let me tell you how. Um, prior to implementing the PACT, it was often that teachers would just jump right in and it felt like they were jumping into great content, but they maybe were starting in the middle. Whereas post-PACT, <laughs> teachers uh, were beginning their units of instruction and individual lessons by attacking those vocabulary skills that are needed to for students to really master the content. They also began using consistent uh, instructional activities so that the students weren't always in a position to not only have to learn about how to do the activity, but then also use their brain to integrate that newly learned material into this newly learned activity. That's sometimes easier said than done. So with consistent use of consistent activities, it reduces the cognitive load for the students, which then ta-da, increases their mastery of the content. And we saw that in all of our students across the uh, learning spans that occur within each classroom. The students overall participation and engagement increased and their confidence increased in the material. So they were better able to raise their hand and shout out what they have learned in a very proud way. So Kathy, you know, I have started to say, because teachers just have constant lists of things to do. Oh, Neil and I God. have repeatedly talked about yes. just, Right, Neil? The struggle with time it's management. Definitely, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so I much mean, time, and they spend more than the hours because they are so dedicated, but yet they don't have the resources available so that they can become more laser focused in what they right. have to do and not be so burned out. There's no and doubt. Neil, your your wife was a kindergarten teacher, right? And I talked right. for X amount of years too, and I would definitely right. see the years of burnout even in teaching for nine years, like I did. And my wife taught for 20 plus that just, again, we just had to reinvent the wheel in so many ways and figure things out for ourselves compared to having great, great uh, formation. Right. And so I've started to say now to so many educators that the pact does not give you to-do lists. The, the pact gives you ta-da lists. Like, look at the outcome. Look at how easy this was, because as we are wrapping up now and saying you really can solve the achievement gap, narrowing that margin between special education students or students with varying abilities or disabilities and those at grade level and above grade level. A solution is there for you. You can simplify learning, which in turn simplifies your teaching. And Neil, I think as a way to wrap up, I'd like to be able to share where people can find out more information about the PACT in this episode uh, by going to aboutthepact.com. That's about A-B-O-U-T, the T-H-E, PACT, P-A-C-T, Com. That's about the pact.com. There's lots of examples and free resources. You also can pick up a copy 
of the start of an ebook series on Amazon, Every Child Can Learn Your Roadmap to Inclusive Education. I would love to just give a virtual hug and thank you to our guest today, Kathy Woods, who did a wonderful job uh, having a meaningful conversation about the achievement cap today. And Kathy, I look forward to having you back on Every Child Can Learn when we could dive into some other pressing educational topics. Thank you. I'd be very excited to do that. And Neil, thank you as always. Anything you'd like to wrap up with, Neil? Uh, no, not at all. I just, uh, just uh, again, it was uh, great information. I think that the, just having the resources available, especially for districts that don't have the funding to have a resource like what you guys are able to do is such an important thing because they need guidance uh, to understand learning, especially learners with the experience level that the two people I'm speaking with today have so that they can become the best teachers as possible. And, and, students learn, yeah. and you're right, Neil, it's all about the contribution. All right. Well, appreciate it. Uh, thanks again uh, for this. It was a great um, episode of every child can learn. Take care guys. And we will talk next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to every child can learn. Please visit Phil's website at aboutthepack.com for questions or comments. Please listen to the Forletta podcast. Larry Forletta, a retired DEA agent turned private investigator, will bring you true life stories on the war on drugs with some of the most infamous international drug traffickers of all time, to name a few, Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Joaquin Guzman, aka El Chapo, and other related real-life crime stories such as Waco. For more information, please visit his website at www.fcisllc.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? Thank you for your service. Well, no problem. Yeah, I'm and, I, and, and I'm pumped hard. up also. You're a Nobel Prize nominee. That's the cool thing. I got to always put that in your title now, uh, but I always like to say that. So Nobel Prize nominee, top level uh, COVID expert. We talked about COVID before anyone else. Remember, I got you booked on a, about 20 podcasts when no one thought it would ever come to the United States. And that we're kind of going into that almost phase of uh, how many years ago we were we were starting to discuss these things. You know what I mean? Yeah, very true. And it's good that we you know we did get out and and, and got good information out. And uh, and now we can see what what's really going on. So uh, wow, the whole the whole uh, scenario just has just been uh, been kind of fascinating uh, and even tricky at points. It is. And let's kind of just jump right into the, you know, the, those particulars and kind of looking at the particulars, first of all, uh, jumping into the, the process. Let's talk about right now, even though we went to no masks all over the country, if you're vaccinated, we are now seeing an uptick because of the new strain being here. Isn't that true, Dr. Hall? We know that's very true. And, and so in general, kind of what we're seeing, uh, we started to notice about early June, that the cases that were reported in the United States uh, were at about 8,000 or so uh, a day. Uh, just recently, July 14th, uh, it's now reporting positive uh, infections uh, at 33,000 a day. And so it has steadily increased from the about mid to late June to now. Um, that other number, the hospitalizations, again, the CDC looks at it over a seven-day period, and they give a seven-day average. Um, so not this past seven days, but the prior seven days, the average hospitalization was uh, about 161 a day. And so for the last seven weeks, it's went up to 211 or so uh, 
over a seven-day average for admissions to the hospital. So again, we see the hospital admissions increasing, we see the number of cases increasing, and um, and therefore we know that the death rate is also going to increase because as hospitalizations increase, the death rate also increases. And so this brings up another question. The newest variant, Dr. Hall, that's something that we have to look at ultimately right now, is the newest variant is more contagious, isn't that correct, than the first COVID a wave that we dealt with, right? Exactly. And the way to think about it is, is that this newest variant, variant um, pretty much um, causes the illness to spread faster. Um, and actually, uh, in England, they found that uh, some of the symptoms were a little more severe with the, the new variant. Now, what's to note is... Um, the vaccinations that are occurring, the vaccinations that are occurring across the country, and how effective has that been? So if we look at that data, um, what the CDC will report is they're saying about 45% of Americans have received one dose of one of the vaccines. Uh, and they said about, I'm sorry, uh, 59% about one dose. And they said about 45% they believe are fully vaccinated. So when you think about that, and you think about the other people who have been uh, received immunity through, uh, say, um, initial exposure just from uh, oral from that virus. Right. There are a lot of people out here with antibodies to the virus. Okay, one part of the virus with spike protein or, or other parts of the virus through those immunity processes. So the fact that the, the, the uh, number of positive cases would go from 8,000 to 33,000 over two or three weeks doesn't really uh, support that we have uh, this level of immunity that's reported by the CDC. And so we have a dilemma. So asymptomatics, another part of this problem, right? Many people are walking around with COVID right now and are dealing with it, right? Exactly. And there are a lot of people who, like, again, um, who have gotten it through, who have just through eating food, who have been, you know, their, their GIS has been exposed to it, and they have mucosal antibodies to it, and then there are people who have, uh, who have been vaccinated. Now, this is what's important to note. Um, the, uh, as you can see, once the virus mutates and, you know, we have a different strain of it, like now we have the Delta, you see that outbreaks will occur. And so we can already predict that with the same vaccine in place, as the virus mutates, more outbreaks will occur. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we rely on the vaccine for the multiple mutations that will occur uh, over the next so many months and years? Yeah, absolutely. When you talk about the vaccine, uh, Dr. Hall, and all these stuff or, or medicines, I think it's a great point because you can't constantly get vaccinated. I mean, what has happened in this, in this process, if we figure out the ways to treat, like you talked about, uh, Dr. Ben Marble and your business and that business again is Dr. Hall. What is it again? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is my, what is that website again? Myfreedoctor.com. And it's a place where you have, again, a number of greatest doctors, uh, a lot of them have been actually nominated for the Nobel Prize uh, for the work with, uh, surrounding COVID, but you have doctors who are willing to treat you with medicines that are effective. And again, what lies before America are the two approaches to treatment for this medication. And this is what it comes to, for this illness, rather. This is what it comes down to. Again, do we rely on a vaccine that we have to keep uh, updating, keep improving for new mutants, okay? And again, we know that just uh, with the vaccines uh, so far, we've had, uh, if you look at the uh, adverse reporting system uh, by the CDC, the government, um, uh, nine to 10,000 deaths uh, from the uh, vaccine. So wow. uh, it would not make sense to keep updating a vaccine, have more deaths, more adverse reactions. When you have a medicine, a uh, number of medicines that are effective to treat this. Again, think about how we treat the flu. People certainly get the flu vaccine, but as we go throughout the season, we don't keep, for that particular season, changing the vaccine every month, every two months, and we don't do that. We treat them with Tamiflu and with other medicines that have been shown to work effectively. Why we're not taking this approach with COVID, I'm not quite sure.
So, okay, so so hydroxychloroquine, uh, zithromycin, and also just, just other types of things. And now this latest virus, Dr. Hall, meaning the latest mutation of this virus, is it as deadly as the first? No doubt. And the fact is, um, data from across the world, particularly what we saw in India most recently, shows that this Delta strain is more deadly than the initial COVID virus that we experienced uh, during the uh, uh, initial pandemic stage. And so that's what we saw in India. We saw that they started to use ivermectin, and then we saw the cases drop, the hospitalizations drop, and the deaths drop. Um, some would like to attribute that to uh, vaccination that occurred in India, but if you look closely at the data, you'll see that when they started using ivermectin is when the death rate and constellation starts to go down in India. And so I think that um, if that approach uh, is very effective. It's been shown to work in India. Interesting. And so what is your recommendation for people, especially that are not wearing masks at all, are not really social distancing? Is that really the best bet right now when we're about to go on fire again? What would you recommend a, a normal person do to kind of be social distance in certain aspects? They've stopped talking about that, saying you don't need masks or anything. That might have been too early of a process, right, to just open everything up for people that are vaccinated. Well, this is the deal. I think that, um, you know, um, the data is showing that the vaccine that we have is not going to be effective uh, to control this illness and to control uh, people from dying uh, from COVID and being reinfected. So we have data that's starting to show that. Um, we certainly do need to social distance. Again, you need to obviously wash your hands. Um, but the most effective treatment, again, if you start to have symptoms, those symptoms of COVID could be, uh, something simple as sore throat, body aches, headache, fever, particularly fever, um, you know, you need to get to a uh, treatment facility where you can get early treatment with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, ivermectin, and those vitamins have been shown to be effective in fighting this virus. And so that's the, that is what it's going to come down to. Um, if I were to predict the future, I'd say that um, effective medicine will control this virus. Um, and, uh, uh, I think that's where we're going. All right. So the best place to go check you out and stuff, Dr. Hall's to follow you on your social media, check out the Dr. Christopher Hall show on all different places, Google you, but also the best bet is, uh, you have a couple websites to go to too, right? And you can purchase your book on Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. Amazon, the book word of court, which details my life from growing up in foster home, four years old, to boys home, to juvenile hall, uh, until I was 18 off to college. So yeah, the book is there with all the details. And, um, I'm hoping this is a message that, uh, America will really, uh, resonate, uh, resonate. Uh, all right. Well, we appreciate it, Chris. The great information again, congratulations again, being a Nobel prize nominee and you're really making a difference. And I'm glad next week we'll be back to celebrities, but I thought this is a perfect timing with the virus increasing to get a take from a doctor, especially a Nobel prize, uh, nominated doctor. So appreciate it. Dr. Hall. No problem. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to Dr. Christopher Hall show guys and take care. 